TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Tensions between the U.S. and Iran are redlining after Iran shot down a U.S. drone, with the U.S. insisting the drone was over international waters in the Strait of Hormuz. And that comes after recent oil tanker attacks near the Strait, with the U.S. pointing the finger of blame at Tehran. Is war inevitable? The Crisis Next Door is joined by Amy Myers Jaffe, a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on foreign policy in the Middle East. Amy, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thank you for having me. Bellicose rhetoric has been fired back and forth between the U.S. and Iran for four decades since the Islamic Republic overthrew the Shah It took over the U.S. Embassy, but it's never seemed hotter than today. And there's even conflicting messages coming from President Trump. On one hand, saying we'll soon find out if the U.S. will strike Iranian targets. And then the other, saying he feels like it's a big mistake, possibly someone on Iran's side acting on their own. Amy, do you think we're going to war or is the president attempting to find a way out? Well, I think the president would be wise Uh, to try to open channels of dialogue, whether that's directly or through an intermediary country, as we've seen over the last week. And that is because in this age of asymmetric warfare, and what do I mean by asymmetric? So not two militaries with ships, submarines, and and troops, but actually um, drones, cyber attacks, uh, other kinds of means where your proxy battles where you have something happening from a Yemeni source or from Lebanon, and it's not really uh, directly uh, the Iranian government. So we have this complicated um, testing of the U.S. will on these issues. And, you know, that gets us into what we call in the military jargon proportional response. So what is a proportional response to the escalation in attacks on targets we've seen, whether that's limpet mines against an t- international tanker in international waters, whether that is a drone attack on a Saudi energy facility. We've had sabotage of a pipeline between Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. So there have been all these little events that don't rise to a quote-unquote trigger for war, and, and, and the United States has to weigh what is a proportional response, and that's very tricky. If you respond with a traditional military response, so we're going to bomb a target in Iran, um, is that overkill if the attack was a cyber one? But a cyber attack might be even more damaging to world energy supply than uh, than than some other traditional you know missile hit something attack. So it's very very complicated situation, and it's a very delicate situation to determine what constitutes the kind of escalation that is going to trigger a direct military confrontation. 
There's a lot of speculation about a limited strike in a reaction to the shootdown of the drone. Is a limited strike even realistic or would escalation be inevitable? Well, I think the problem with a limited strike, and I, I, I believe the administration has been looking at a limited strike for some time because even though the world is now focused on these attacks because they've happened a string of attacks, you know, like maybe a dozen, a half a dozen to a dozen attacks have happened just in the last week. But over the last two years, off and on, we've had attacks on shipping, shipping um, in the Red Sea. And so, you know, this has been sort of an ongoing problem. And I think the question is, if you have what I call a proportional response, you know, you're going to have a limited military engagement to send a signal that the U.S. military is serious. The problem is, what is going to be the proportional response back by Iran? And the real challenge is that Iran has all these proxies in different locations. They have a cyber team and they have these unconventional tactics. And and so and, and it, it highlights a problem that goes beyond the Strait of Hormuz theater, which is that we are increasingly, you know, we had the story that was published in the New York Times over the weekend that the United States has opened up its offensive into the Russian electricity grid uh, to be prepared to provide a deterrent against Russia interfering with something electronically in the United States. That could be our own grid, could be our election system and so forth. So we're really moving into very uncharted territory in terms of what constitutes a well-recognized deterrence. And that is why there is no replacement for saying in a back channel, this is what we consider a deterrence and here is the escalation that is going to happen if you take steps A, B, and C. We consider the following things a direct attack on the following countries. And, and really define it because in this very messy, ill-defined space of, uh, well, my fingerprints aren't really on that. And here's a video that shows that it wasn't my ship that laid that mine. You know, once you start going down that game, you know, it's very challenging. And so I think the diplomatic messaging, uh, maybe not via Twitter, needs to be very clear, which is that these things constitute an escalation. Uh, they will be met in the following way and, um, and, and really make it very clear. And here is the path uh, to negotiation. Speaking of Russia, President Putin warned that any military conflict would be a catastrophe for the region. Uh, Russia obviously working closely with Iran in Syria. Any fears that Russia would be involved in any way on Iran's side if the U.S. were to go and strike Iranian targets? Well, I don't think we have an indication of that right now. And if you look at the history of the recent meetings of OPEC, um, Russia has been sort of on the same team, so to speak, as Saudi Arabia, which is clearly the country that's uh, been taking the brunt of uh, some of these attacks coming from the Iranian side, partially because of its conflict with Yemen. So I think that's a very complex uh, it's not clear where the Russians stand on these issues. You know, Iran made clear in its statements twice that if its oil's not going out the Persian, Persian Gulf, no one's oil is going out the Persian Gulf. That was a very bold statement. They've made that statement twice. 
the last time was in April by the actual president of the country. And so on the record. So but that, you know, you could say, well, you know, if there's a oil supply catastrophe that benefits the Russians because they um, they they would benefit because their oil would not be disrupted. It doesn't come out the Persian Gulf. But, you know, we've seen this accident, so to speak, in the Russian pipeline system where the, uh, the poisonous gas got infiltrated into Russian crude and it disrupted the entire operations of a pipeline through Poland to Europe that caused the Russians to have to drop their production by 300,000 barrels a day. And, you know, that same kind of thing, now that we've unveiled the fact that Russia's pipeline system is exposed, there's this possibility that you could have sabotage against Russian exports uh, if you had a party that was unhappy with the Russians. And so there's a lot of risks to go around. And I think that the Russians themselves are exposed to Islamic extremists and other groups that could infiltrate their export pipeline system. So there's a lot of risk to go around. We're seeing the price of oil surge higher. Uh, West Texas crude up around 6% or so, closing in on $57. Are you surprised, though, that we haven't seen a bigger surge in oil prices, considering how much of the world's oil ships through the Strait of Hormuz? I do feel that the uh, trading community and the speculative community is is underestimating um, the risk of supply. And, and you know, from in a number of different ways, um, in terms of the conflict in the Middle East, this problem I just mentioned in Russia, you have uh, this ongoing situation that prevents oil uh, now from being exported from Venezuela. And you have other conflicts, like the conflict in Libya. You have uh, a insecurity about the transition, political transition in a number of countries like Algeria. So... I think on balance, there's a lot of risk in the market, and I get that. There's concerns about the global economy, but the risk the risk to supply is pretty immediate in terms of the risk playing out in the next few months, whereas the sort of downturn in the global economy and having that affect oil demand is a little bit more of a long-term thing. So I'm, I personally am a little cautious about the oil price, thinking we still could have a lot of upward momentum this summer. Uh, whereas when I look out to 2020, maybe I have a more relaxed view of what the long-term trend is. And and I, I think it's a factor. I mean, I think that um, uh, we have this term in economics and finance, we call it the cascading effect. And that's where the market is trading a certain way. And then all of a sudden, people have a new perception um, about risk and it's in the it's incorporation into pricing and you have this giant hurting effect where everybody worries about oil at the same moment and we could have a big move um, to the upside. So here before, everybody's been concerned about the trade war and the impact that was going to have on Chinese oil demand. Um, and I, I, I wrote a article uh, a week or so ago uh, where the headline was, question mark, um, is OPEC China's problem? Because here in the United States, we're having an increasing amount of our oil demand met by our own supply internally. And of course, we do still import some oil from the Middle East. And there's some considerations of the quality of oil that we need for certain refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast. But we're exporting a lot of refined product today. And so in the end, the country that is really the most exposed 
to a cutoff of oil supply because of a conflict in the Strait of Hormuz is China. And they have been, I mean, they've made one or two comments, but you would expect them to, you would, you would think that they would have the interest to take a more active stance in working on the diplomacy. And, you know, I think that involves China trying to talk to Iran about its attacks on the shipping and its attacks on Saudi Arabia, because that is Iran, that is China's oil supply that Iran is harassing. And you would think that China would be concerned about it, more concerned than they appear. If not for the U.S. trade war with China, it would seem likely that Washington could ask Beijing to open a back channel with Tehran, but that just does not seem likely at the moment. But China really has been making bigger moves into the Middle East, North Africa, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, What's it going to take China to get into these particular arguments in the Middle East and take a side and, and find a way to resolve these issues before they blow up into some sort of catastrophe, as President Putin warns? I, I think it's very interesting. China as an economy was self-sufficient in energy in 1973. They were self-sufficient in energy in 1979. And they were even self-sufficient in energy in 1990. So they have not truly experienced the kind of dislocation that can come. I mean, they were, they were hit a little bit with the price run up in, um, in 2008, you know, 2007, 2008. But they still were, had access to the oil. So they've never really, as an economy of the size and scale they have today with the number of Chinese citizens that have automobiles, they have not had a we're all in gasoline lines, you know, 1973 style effect in their economy to date. And I think that they do not have sufficient experience to understand how at risk they are to this sort of raging conflict and the fact that, I mean, you, you saw, you know, Japan made this a very high priority to try to help ease these tensions. And you would think that China, with even greater influence, um, would be in, in Iran, would be also, you know, knocking on the door uh, in Tehran to try to, you know, see what they could do. And so it's very interesting to me that they're acting like they're this uninvolved party or uh, making a statement about, you know, warning the United States to not, you know, be belligerent, um, when really, you know, it could be their tanker that's hit by a mine. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the face-off between the U.S. and Iran with Amy Myers-Jaffe, a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on foreign policy in the Middle East. You earlier mentioned the potential threats facing U.S. forces in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East from Iranian proxies, such as the various Shiite militia groups in Iraq, Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, the Houthis in Yemen. How much control does Tehran have over these groups and how critical are they in its face-off with Washington? Well, you know, proxies are a dangerous tool because Tehran does not have 100% control over what happens on the ground in these places. And, I mean, they have a certain amount of influence, and, of course, they, they provide military supply lines, and they can adjust that, uh, I suppose. But, you know, in the end, there is this variable, which, as you mentioned at the top of the hour with President Trump's tweet alluding, where, you know, 
you can have a party and they have uh, they have an interest in a conflict that's different than the host country that is that is supporting the proxy, and and that can be very difficult to manage in a very fluid situation. And so, um, I do think that it's not a hundred percent one for one. There are you know you have these groups on the ground and they are not always being orchestrated a hundred percent. Um, by the, you know, the sort of supplier uh, country, so to speak. So I think the Iranians do have a lot of control, obviously, um, in the war in Syria and, and even in Iraq. You know, we saw a lot of uh, times, you know, both positive and negative, where Iran either uh, worked together with the United States to make sure that its proxies played a constructive role in the joint interests in, in uh clawing back the influence of ISIS in those territories. Um, but, uh, you know, also, uh, uh, you know, the, easy to say, well, you know, that was just my proxy, so it's not my fault. But in the end, they, they do have some influence. So, and again, that gets to my point about proportional response. You know, the Iranians believe that they are masters at uh, doing these you know, suspicious attacks where you would have to prove that it was Iran. And, you know, with the history of the U.S. Um, war in Iraq and, um, you know, can, does the U.S. feel comfortable going to the United Nations saying, hey, we have evidence that this was Iranian um, ordered. So, you know, the Iranians know that, but we have an expression uh, uh, in the United States that my father-in-law used uh, very frequently, he said, too clever by a half. And there's a little bit of that in the Iranian um, genre here, because you can say that everything's messy and it wasn't me and it wasn't that, but, you know, we're having so many attacks and the targets are so incredibly strategic. You know, we're not just having these random attacks. It was a random missile, um, you know, flew into something. You know, in Iraq, we had a, a missile that was known to be sort of a missile that would be of the type that Iran would use, and it hit within 100 meters of uh, ExxonMobil's oil operations in Iraq. And we had an attack on a, on a, a, a hub in the port of, port of Fujairah, and that happened to be not only the location of where the UAE's bypass pipeline ends, but it's where... Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates store oil outside the Persian Gulf in case there's a problem and they need to supply their customers in China and Japan and the United States and elsewhere. So these were not indiscriminate targets. The drone attack on the pipeline in Saudi Arabia, that is the pipeline Saudi Arabia uses to bypass the Strait of Hormuz. So none of these attacks have been random. And that really calls into the question you know, how would the proxies know and choose, you know, eight different times to pick highly strategic topics? I'm sorry, pick highly strategic targets if it's not orchestrated. I mean, that seems like a huge amount of intelligence that all these proxies need to gather um, to select in, in a series these different targets. This really is the ultimate high-stakes game of chicken. It's been suggested in some quarters that perhaps the U.S. approach a covert reaction, perhaps taking an Israeli approach in how it deals with its Middle Eastern neighbors. Is that perhaps the, the more likely option that could prevent 
a limited strike from blowing up into a regional catastrophe? I'm not a military strategist, so maybe I'm not the right person to ask that question. Maybe we need to you know, talk to someone with a defense background. But it does seem that a large public attack would be more challenging and be more apt to um, unleash a retaliation or a continued escalation than something that was proportional. In other words, the Iranians are doing these asymmetric attacks. So a asymmetric attack back seems like it would be a proportional response. Now, the Trump administration, when the difficulties with Russia were arising, um, you know, were masterful at using sanctions to target specific Russian companies um, in a way that would really harm Putin's inner circle. And it, it got the message across extremely effectively. The, the Russian, the inner circle of Russian oligarchs, uh, when we put sanctions on Rusal, uh, in one day they caught Black Monday in Moscow, wiped out $50 billion in wealth among Putin's most closest associates. You know, that was an extremely effective response because you're hitting uh, the, the decision makers um, inner circle directly. It does not um, rise to the risk of a escalation in military activity. Um, it's not visible as a military response in the way that a direct strike is. Um, so you have the whole sort of rules of engagement um, where it was just sanctions, so it doesn't seem like a rules of engagement escalation. Um, so I do think that these asymmetric attacks, the Iranians are being, as I say, too clever by a half because they're like, oh, geez, you know, you can't hit me because I didn't really punch you. You know, I just threw dust up and it went in your eye. And um, and so, you know, the answer is, well, do you, you know, do you respond in kind? I mean, we have all kinds of interesting tools um, that could be used. And, you know, maybe the use of the uh, Fifth Fleet is not the is not going to be the most effective response in the, at this particular moment. Um, and so the, I think that's an assessment that we lay people can't really make. That's really a military assessment. But one would imagine um, that the president is asking for several different kinds of options. And one would imagine that an asymmetric response to an asymmetric attack might be one of many options that would be considered as opposed to a direct strike, which has um, a completely different trajectory. We can't talk about Iran without mentioning its enemies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel. How would you see those countries factoring into any potential fight between the U.S. and Iran? Well, I think that, you know, the finesse of American foreign policy, and we saw this during the Gulf War and other very successful um, U.S. campaigns in the region, you know, the success of a U.S. Uh, a participation or action is to make sure that our allies are in alignment with our strategy and vice versa. And so, you know, one of the most important elements of the Gulf War, of course, was to get Israel to agree that if missiles landed in Israel as part of the Iraq war, that um, Israel would not respond, that Israel would trust the United States to handle it because we were taking the lead. And that was very successful. Um, and it was very successful 
in Saudi Arabia. I know I have uh, good friends in, in both countries who, you know, went through tense moments in air raid shelters or with gas masks. And it's a very challenging thing for both of those allies. Um, their governments handled it with a steady hand. And we know the end of the story, which is that Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was uh, repelled. So I think this is the same kind of issue where um, where it's important that proxy wars not drag the United States into a military conflict that would be a not ideal outcome for all parties concerned. So the diplomacy needs to go across both between the United States and its allies. It needs to go between the United States and Iran, either through intermediaries or, or directly. I mean, there's nothing better than a direct interaction where there can be no uh, misunderstanding of the communication. We're telling you what the consequences are. We're defining what we consider an act of war. We're defining how we are going to proceed and, and what the expectations are for a uh, conflict resolution. I mean, there's nothing better than to have clear messaging. The world will be watching closely as these developments are extremely fluid between Iran and the U.S. Amy, thank you very much for joining us here today on The Crisis Next Door. All right. Thank you for having me. We've been joined by Amy Myers Jaffe, a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on foreign policy in the Middle East. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.